0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be finishing up chapter 3 this morning, reading verses 27 through 31. And let us come to the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Father, we do love You and we love Your Word. That is the foundation upon which this church rests, Lord, is your word. That it is authoritative, that it is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it's sufficient, Lord. That it is all that we need. It reveals to you, reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us what you require. and It reveals to us how helpless we are but it also reveals to us the hope that we have for you to fulfill your promise through the gospel. Father, I pray that as we come before your word, Lord, that we would have hearts and minds prepared to hear the messages that your word contains. And that your word would not be just something we hear, but it would be something that would shape us and change us, Lord. That this would be the means that you're using to disciple us and transform us into the image of your blessed Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's in His mighty name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The Prince of preachers Charles Spurgeon once wrote. Grace puts its hand over the boasting mouth and shuts it once and for all. So the idea of grace is really a warm and welcome idea to all of us. The idea of God's grace is something that we all love, especially when we're the recipients of it. The idea of grace is a concept that we readily grasp, God granting us something that we don't deserve, which is exactly what we talked about last week. We spent some time talking about salvation and the nature of, of grace. We talked about mercy is, is God not giving us the punishment we do deserve, and then grace is the opposite, Give God giving us the things that we don't deserve. And as we, we talked about, God's common grace is evident throughout the entire world, even now as war rages you know, in the Ukraine, there is still common grace. There is the gift of life. There is the warmth of the sun. There is the comfort of a hug from a loved one. There is, there is the taste of food, the sweetness of a good night's sleep, the joy of family and friends. All of these things and more than we can even count and, and even reason all of these things are, are gifts of grace that God has given to all of mankind. We, and we understand that and we and we love that. In addition to that, then there's God's special grace, that special saving grace where he justifies sinners through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. God, right? That God, according to his own eternal plan of redemption, miraculously brings those who are spiritually dead back to life. That he takes his enemies. And he makes them part of his family. That in Christ all of our needs are met and that we can be reconciled back into fellowship with God. And, and all of this is offered to us simply on the basis of faith in Christ. Salvation is a gift from God that we are to be received by faith. And so intellectually we hear that and we understand that because the idea of being saved by grace is not an impossibility for us to grasp. But for some reason, the idea of salvation by grace through faith seems near impossible for some people to accept. One of the hardest things for humans to accept is the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Again, we know it, we understand it, but accepting it's a whole different issue. There's something in the human psyche that tends to lean toward Some type of error with respect to this. Because it seems like we're hardwired to believe that we must do something, even a little something, to merit God's love, to merit God's grace. There's something in us that believes that we must earn by our own efforts, even a little bit, God's love, that we must do something to reciprocate and give back to God what he's done for us, that we must do something to, to earn his favor. And the reason for that, I think, is the truth that salvation by grace through faith runs contrary to really all of our human experience. Because in all the rest of our lives, Everything else we have in our life is based on a merit system. Everything else is merit-based. Don't believe me? Check your credit score. The reality is we we know that you must earn your way through life. You must earn by working hard. You must earn your way through life, whether working hard or, or coercion or some type of dishonest way. There's something you must do and understand humanly speaking earning things and earning your way isn't a bad thing in fact it's actually really helpful in relationships it helps to maintain at least a certain set of balance All right you want a spot on the on the the roster for a team <laughs> you got to earn it you want to have a lot of money so you can have a big house and have lots of vacations you got to do what you got to do to earn it You want to be accepted to top top academic institutions? They're not giving those places to people with with F's. You got to earn it. You want a promotion at work? You You got to work for it. You want to be respected by your peers? You got to do something that's respectable. You got to earn it. Even in our families, trust is earned. Even in our families, privileges are earned. Kids are told that all the time, right? You might have your rights but those privileges can be revoked like that. That's why we make our kids say things like they're sorry. right? Even when they're not sorry, you still gotta do something to earn that right back. That's why we make our kids give back the things that they took. That's why husbands buy flowers. They gotta earn it back. Throughout human experience, all we have ever known is earning our way. Even if it's just doing the minimum, like saying I'm sorry or making up for our mistakes. Right? Even when it comes down to to personal relationships and even forgiveness and restoration, we still expect a certain level of earning. It's hard to forgive somebody who's in your face still. It's hard to have be reconciled with someone who's not doing something to be reconcilable. And so our whole human experience is about earning our way. And so this idea of completely being justified through Christ by grace simply as a gift, this idea that salvation is 100% the work of God and all we do is receive it by faith is an idea that we might be able to comprehend, but really it's a struggle for us to accept it. That's why you'll hear people, even Christians, say things like, man, I just need to get right with God as if it's your ability to do that. I just need to be a better person so God will forgive me. I just need to do more good deeds than bad deeds so then that way I balance out the scales. I just need to make sure I'm at the church every time the doors are open. I need to make sure that everyone around me sees how joyful I am in the Lord. Right, because man, if people see me that I'm not joyful, they might think I really don't have a relationship with God. I need to do penance. I mean, I need to hide for a little while from God. I need to emotionally beat myself up because of my sin so that God will accept me again. I need to put myself in this spiritual penalty box and just avoid church and avoid praying and just, just emotionally just torment myself until finally maybe then I can sneak back into God's presence and maybe he'll accept me again. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to keep those rules. I need to stop doing this and start doing that. Most of us, have a default setting where we feel like somehow, way, we got to do something to make God love us and have his favor. Even if we know up here that it's still all about grace. It's even worse, though, for those people who grow up in legalistic traditions. And there's a lot of that, right? Where you're told that if you're a Christian, then you need to act a certain way. If you're a Christian, you need to dress a certain way. If you're a Christian, you don't do this, and if you're a Christian, you need to do that, and you need to do these things and don't do those things, and you hang out with those people, but you don't hang out with those people. Right? And believe me, I know that you're all familiar with that kind of religion. Even even people that are well-meaning in putting up barriers understand that those things can become legalistic. And if you follow the rules, right, we're told, then you're one of the ones that are special. Then you're one of the ones that are the true believers because God's pleased with you unlike everyone else. Legalism in, has many forms, ranging from, from personal legalism where you kind of have like this, you know, you decide you're not doing something and you make it like, you know, part of the standard of how you feel like you're right with God, all the way up to, to uh, institutional legalism, things that, that actually invade whole churches like critical race theory, Critical race theory is nothing more than legalism with a new name. Critical race theory tells you that you're right, not because of what you believe, but what you do. That's what makes you right or not right. That you're going to be right with men. You have to do certain things, not simply just believe in the gospel. That's legalism. Or how about the Torah observant movement? It's a very popular movement today on social media, Right? Now, this movement, though, is not overtly denying, they don't overtly deny that the, the need for grace, but it promotes this idea that Christians are required to keep the law, the Torah, that they're required to study and to keep the Torah, which then involves all the festivals and things like this, because according to them, that's what Christians do by default. Again, it's a new form of legalism, by the way, that takes us all the way back to the early church. In fact, the, the fact That's the problem that Paul addresses here is this tendency of religious people towards pride and legalism because grace, for some reason, in the human mind is hard for us to accept. In this text, Paul returns to his diatribe that he began in in, uh, chapter 2, if you remember. A diatribe is really just this kind of... Literary device where an author is having an imaginary back and forth conversation with someone that illustrates a point. In this ongoing diatribe, Paul is having a conversation with this imaginary Jewish person who's struggling with grace, struggling to reconcile what Paul is teaching about the gospel. In chapter one, Paul announces that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And then he says that that the righteousness, the righteous will live not by their works, the righteous will live by faith. And then he explains that all of mankind, including the religious Jewish people, are guilty before God because their sin and they're, they're deserving nothing but God's wrath and condemnation like the rest of the world. Paul then indicts all of humanity and demonstrates how corrupt mankind is. But understand, he doesn't do this simply just to convict mankind, but to point them to their need for Christ. Because as Paul explains, God of His own accord satisfied His own wrath against us by sending His Son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. And not only are we washed clean and forgiven when we are justified, we're declared legally righteous before God as a gift received, not by the things that we do, but by faith simply in Christ. Which, by the way, is the turning point of the gospel. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. All of mankind is corrupt and rejected, right? That mankind has turned his back on God. And even those who are religious are self-righteous and even hypocritical. And all of mankind has fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness, righteousness and deserve the worst that God has to offer. But God in his mercy and grace and his love does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He satisfies for himself his demand the demands of the law by putting Christ, His Son, to death on our behalf, and then He satisfies His righteousness by crediting Christ's righteousness to us, bringing us from death to life, and giving us and all that is given to us by grace, simply received by faith. Again, that's the good news, but this good news is particularly hard for for the Jews to accept. Those who are drawn to self righteous legalism, especially if you grew up in the first century in rabbinic Judaism, because they believed that they were God's people simply because of their nationality, simply because of what family they were born into. As we talked about, the Jews having the law and having the sign of circumcision led them to believe that they were by default guaranteed entrance in the kingdom of God simply because of that. And this was the, and it was this status, right, that helped to develop in them a sense of pride, a sense of superiority over all the other nations and all the other groups. They saw in themselves that they were vastly superior than the Gentiles. They were morally, uh, ethnically, and spiritually superior. That's why they were... That's why they were so vain that's why that when they had contact with Gentile people they'd go home and wash their their hands and take and change their clothes because they literally thought they can't be contaminated by those people and so Paul so Paul's gospel puts them on the same footing though Paul's gospel takes that elevated sense of who they are and says by the way you're no better off than them and makes them equal both in corruption and, and also as recipients of God's grace which was very hard for them to swallow and they they began to push back but and, and and no doubt Paul has encountered this kind of prideful bewilderment before as he's talked to many people about the gospel and so he then raises the question or the objections that he's encountered for us to be able to see and so in this text Paul's going to raise three questions on the behalf of the imaginary Jews to address three common objections to the gospel of grace Three things that cause people to push back on this idea that somehow, way, we don't deserve it. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. And Paul, again, acting as his, his adversary, he asked the question, what then becomes of our boasting? Now, I'm going to tell you, like when I've read this many times before, I just find this a really strange question. What became, becomes of our boasting? I, I mean... We live at a time where boasting is kind of frowned upon, right? Even though a lot of people boast, and even though it's kind of in our nature to boast, right? Boasting is still kind of seen as obnoxious and socially unacceptable, especially if you're doing it on purpose. I mean, let's be honest, right? We are all, every one of us, prone to boast. We are prone to brag right? and be full of ourselves. I mean, just think about how many times you've talked about your kids and grandkids lately, right? Just look at social media, by the way, full of people trying to present themselves as lives that they are not really actually living, right? Boasting about this and about that. But at least, even though that we boast, in our culture, that tends to be kind of frowned upon, right? And so people will boast kind of quietly, but then act like they're trying to be humble, right? But but here Paul is asking the question on behalf of this imaginary Jewish conversationalist, Right. What becomes of our boasting? As if boasting is normal, right? And the, the truth is it was, it was normal because the Jews had bought into this idea that they were very special. They believed themselves to be superior to everyone else around them. They believed this. I mean, think about this. God had chosen them. Of all the nations of the world, God chose them to be his nation. God personally led them in the wilderness. God personally rescued them from bondage in Egypt. God supernaturally fed them for 40 years. They never wanted for food or water. Their clothing didn't wear out. God set up His dwelling among them, first in the tabernacle and then ultimately in the temple. God had spoken to them many times through the prophets. And on top of that, they had then the law, the God-given code they had the, the moral law, but they also had the civil law that set them apart from all the other nations. And they had the ceremonial law that, that made them clean enough to be close to God. They had also then the sign of circumcision, that, that physical sign in the, all the males that said that you are different than everyone else. Then they had the promise of Abraham that, that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham and then even Jesus himself was Jewish came and coming from this line they had in their own minds every reason to be proud they had been raised to boast everything about their lives and their culture was different and special and so it was in their nature to boast boasting was just normal They boasted about everything. They boasted about who they were. They boasted in their relationship with God. They boasted about how much better they were than all those who were not Jews. So it seemed odd for them not to boast. It seemed that they had every reason to boast. But now they are confronted with the fact that they don't even have a reason to boast. Paul takes that worldview and smashes it down and says, you're exactly on the same footing as those dirty Gentiles that you look down on. You're just as guilty as they are before God. And you were justified, by the way, by the same grace through faith as those gentle Gentiles are. Remember, Paul said in chapter um, in this chapter, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Then he says, For there is no distinction, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by. His grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So fundamentally, there is no distinction at all between the Jews and Gentiles. And, and so, they, so they ask, what becomes of our boasting then? I mean, we've been boasting all over our lives. What now? And Paul answers, it's excluded. It's excluded. It's cut off. The word that's used here for excluded means to separate or to shut out. In essence, to push it away. Boasting is excluded. It's no longer allowed. There is no place for it anymore. You had nothing to boast about. You see, the grace of God excludes boasting. Because salvation is of grace and not of works. Salvation is 100% the work of God and not of man. So boasting is excluded. To which the Jews would ask, then what kind of law then? What law says that? By the law of works? Who's, who says that boasting is excluded? Does, that, does the law forbid us from, from boasting? Does the law say that we can't boast? And Paul says no, by the law of faith. And understand that Paul's not trying to connect the law and faith together. He's not saying that, that Christ requires some legal obedience to this mysterious law of faith. What Paul is simply saying is this, is it just don't have anything to boast about. That's what the law of faith is, is you don't have anything to boast about. For we are hold, he says, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In verse 28, he says that. We are justified by faith alone. By the way, this is the scripture that Martin Luther used to emphasize sola fide. That we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, which means we don't contribute anything to our own salvation. You see, if what the scriptures say is true, if we were really if we started off dead in our sins and trespasses before we came to Christ if we were under God's wrath and judgment as sinners if we really had no way of fixing that situation on our own if if we were unrighteous not seeking God and not able to understand as Paul had just said and then we became justified both pardoned and made righteous not by our ability to keep the law but by 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 like grace is a gift received through faith alone, that there is nothing in the world that we can rightly boast about. Nothing in the world can we boast about. Why? Because we didn't do anything. We didn't earn it. Again, it's contrary to everything else in our life, right? You see, the Jews felt self-righteous because they had been born into a select family and because they practiced these rituals and these cultures and all these feasts and they felt that those things justified them and they've been told all their life that they were special and set apart and they believed that they were right with God because of what they did and who they were but now the gospel says that's meaningless your nationality your gender your skin color your your income status your physical health your intelligence level every one of those things are irrelevant with respect to your relationship with god none of those things earn your way into the presence of god because all men are created equal and equally condemned they are and only and the only way a human can be justified and saved is by god's grace through faith alone there is nothing that we have to brag about. There's nothing we have to boast about. As the early American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, reminds us, he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I, I felt that was important enough that I included that in your notes. That, I mean, that right there, that sentence alone is worth the price of admission today, right? That one right there is one that you can actually take home and write on the bathroom mirror. That's one that you can put on a little note card and put it in your car just to remind yourself you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The Jews had spent their entire life boasting about who they were and what they did only to find that the gospel, that there is nothing in the gospel for them to boast about. There's nothing to boast about except Christ. By the way, that's exactly what we're called to do, is to not boast in anything but in Christ himself. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's a complete revolutionary change of mind. Our only boast is in God. In fact, by the way, this shouldn't have been news to them because the Old Testament itself teaches that. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, we read, "He said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. They should have really understood that. They had nothing to boast about except God himself. So in Paul's gospel, the Jews see that, that the difference between them and the rest of the world, those differences are gone. They're erased. They have nothing to boast about. They have nothing to make that makes them superior. And this is a difficult truth for them to grab a hold of. Now, before we look down on them and think to ourselves, those those hypocrites, we need to take a look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. Because we're a lot like them. Maybe not overtly boasting, but we too look for things to boast about. We look for things to distinguish ourselves from everyone else. I mean, I've been to church every Sunday since I was three years old. I've been a Christian for 55 years. I've memorized the book of Revelation. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't play video games, and I don't do social media. I attend three Bible studies a week, and I feed the homeless, and I give the full tithe. Well, I was led by the Lord. I was led to the Lord by, you know, that famous pastor, Chuck Smith. And he baptized me in the ocean. That's what kind of Christian I am. Now, understand, none of these things are bad in themselves. You should attend church as often as you can. You need the fellowship. You need to worship. You need the discipleship, right? And you should memorize chunks of the Bible. I promise you, it will change your life and it will be helpful to you. And you should care about your health and your physical, mental health. And you should attend Bible studies. Those are good for you. And you certainly should look for ways to meet the needs of others and shine the light of Christ in the rest of the world. But None of those things contribute anything to the love that God has for you. None of those things compels God to have mercy on you. None of those things justify you in in God's sight. I was listening to a a message by Paul Washer. He said, he says, I have been in missionary work all my life. I have lived in jungles and run from danger. I have preached the gospel in places that no one else would dare to go. He says, "I I have started orphanages. I have... Helped in hospitals and I've held dying people in my arms, preaching the gospel to them. I've done this, I've done that. And he goes, I'm going to tell you, you know what all that amounts to when it comes to my relationship with Christ? Nothing. He says, not any of that justifies me before God. The only thing that justifies me before God is my faith in him, period, end of story, respect of, respect of what I've done. And so there's nothing for us to boast about. There's no cause for us to boast, because because these things don't save you. They don't make you right before God. Now, understand. These other things certainly can help you to grow to, to, to Christian maturity, but the more mature you become in your faith, I promise you, the more you'll see that it's all of God's grace, and you'll see even then even less to boast about. And so boasting is excluded. The Jews had nothing to boast about with respect to their relationship with God and their status before him. And then Paul moves on to the next question. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he the God of the Gentiles also? One of the underlying assumptions that the Jews lived by was the assumption that they had exclusive access to God. That that God was their God and not the God of the rest of the world. Now, it was true, the rest of the world was cut off from the covenant community with God at one point. But this was was God's design to use the nation of Israel to demonstrate himself to the rest of the world and to draw the rest of the world to himself through them. Israel was not simply set apart just to be set apart. They were set apart for God's purposes. And his purpose was to draw all the nations to himself. Because God's plan has always been from the very beginning to include the Gentiles. But the Jews saw this setting apart as something exclusive to them, that they had an exclusive claim on God. He's he's, he's our God. They thought that God belonged to them rather than them belonging to Him. They thought God was their God exclusively, and this led them to believe that this made them superior to the rest of the world and and giving them justification to be elitists and to discriminate against the rest of the world. They would look down their noses at everyone else. If you remember in the book of Mark, Jesus came into the temple and he flipped over tables and drove the merchants out of the temple. Because what they did is they set up a swap meet in in, in the temple grounds where they were selling animals for sacrifices and they were changing coins and people were profiteering and they were using part of the temple as a roadway to connect the city for for commercial transport right and Jesus was upset about this but what part of the temple did they do this in it wasn't in the court of Israel where they came to worship and it certainly wasn't in the court of the priests where the priests did their work and it wasn't inside the temple itself in the most in the holy place where did they set up this commercial center that upset Jesus so much? It was the court of the Gentiles. It was the place where the Gentiles, the rest of the world, was allowed to come. They set up their businesses and their operations in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the rest of the world would come to be near the Lord and worship Him. If you remember, Jesus said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the Nations, but you have made it a den of robbers you have been robbing the gentiles of their ability to come and worship god you were you were getting in the way of the gentiles coming to god you were not fulfilling the purpose by which you were created this by the way is why jesus cursed israel and the temple and the leadership because israel had failed to do what god called them to do to be a light to the gentiles to be a light to the rest of the world, to invite the rest of the world to come and worship God. Because they saw God as their exclusive claim. And on that basis, they they would look down on the Gentiles as inferior dogs and unworthy. But notice Paul answers, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul makes it clear that both Jew and Gentile alike, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, are justified on exactly the same basis. They're justified simply by faith. Because not only is the God the God of the Jews, he's also the God of the Gentiles. He is the God of both. God is unified in his purpose for mankind. Notice that Paul alludes to the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's a little prayer that Jews pray every day. Shema means literally, it means hear, right? And it, it Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is something he prayed every day. It's a reminder of the of the, the oneness of God, that He is unified within himself, that he, there is only one true God. And following that, then, they, then it would, in verse 5 it says, you shall love the Lord, Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. Paul is referring to this to illustrate his point. He's making it clear that God is the only God and he's the God of all of mankind. Paul makes it clear that, that the grace of God excludes discrimination. This is an important thing for them to understand. This is an important thing for us to understand. The grace of God excludes discrimination. Not only does the grace of God and the gospel exclude boasting, it excludes self-righteous superiority. The self-righteousness the Jews felt about themselves. As John Stott says in his commentary, if the gospel of justification by faith alone excludes boasting, it excludes all elitism and discrimination too. Because there is only one God. I think that was the next slide, Carson. Okay, yeah. Because there's only one God, and He is the God of the entire world. And His people, His elect, is not simply just the nation of Israel. His elect is the people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is why we remind each other of the Great Commission. We are to go out into the world to make disciples of who? The nations, all people groups. His people are from every background. His people are from every skin color. His people of every culture and from every part of the world. And all of those people stand equal in God's sight. They were all equally condemned under their sin and are equally justified by grace through faith. And this is important for us today because, because we, like the Jews, have a tendency to be elitists on some level and to discriminate. It seems to be in our nature to look down on other people. Now, we might not think that we do, but I'm telling you, we do. We we have a tendency to look down on other people and their lives and think that we're better than them. We might not say it out loud, but we still feel it. Because either we have more money than them or because their families, you know, our families are not quite as chaotic as their families are. Or we're just not falling prey to the same ugly sin that they're falling prey to. Maybe we're just a bit more mature in our Christianity than than them, or so we think. All of us, at times, will look at someone else and go, as if we're better than them. For whatever reason, it seems to be part of our DNA to compare ourselves to other people and to rank ourselves in comparison to other people, even if we don't mean to do it. But here's the thing. We never have any cause at all to look down on anyone. We simply don't. doesn't mean that we can't be discerning and call wrong, wrong, and right, right. We don't have any cause for us to look condescendingly upon anyone. Because there's nothing in us that warrants God's grace. There's not anything in us that warrants God's grace. There's not anything in us that demands God's mercy on us. There's nothing in us that shouts to the heavens that we deserve God's love. Whatever difference between us and other people in the, in the eyes of God with respect to justification is superficial at best. In fact, Jesus addresses this point in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, in fact, will not you turn with me really quick there. I think it's important, an important text for us to read and to hold on to. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. It says in verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. All right, so this this is the attitude that we're talking about right here, right? That's ingrained in all of us. So he told this parable some who trusted in themselves and who were that they were righteous and that they treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extort uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We have no cause to look down our noses at anyone because there's nothing in us that warrants God's grace. Nothing. Because of the grace of God, discrimination is excluded. And it's especially excluded among Christians. You see, in Christ, all things that separate us that make us different, that, that, that might be barriers to us. Those things have been removed. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through what? Faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all One. In Christ Jesus. And the reason why I emphasize this point is because there is a growing cultural movement that's undermining the church and the unity within the church. It started off as an insidious little seed that makes has made its way into all of the political arena and all of the educational institutions, now has made its way into the church. And it is critical race theory and intersectionality. Critical race theory divides people up among amongst ethnic identity identities and creates categories of oppressor and oppressed and teaches that true unity is ultimately impossible, especially here in America. It teaches that the original sin of America is white supremacy and that every white person is by nature a racist no matter what they say or no matter what they do, no matter how they act. And it teaches the belief that, that all white people just by being white then benefit from something called white privilege, again, no matter how they live or how they've grown up or how difficult they've had things and no matter what attitude they have and they basically say that you're never going to escape it. And because of that, white people can never truly can be reconciled to people of color in this this life. That the best that they can hope for is to be considered an ally, but they can never experience true unity even in the church. And that is why there are a lot of calls by liberals for black people to separate themselves into black churches. There is a call right now in conservative, classically conservative churches for blacks and whites to separate themselves because because whites will never, ever be able to understand. There's even calls for, for black people to only listen to black preachers and to read only black theologians. It is pervasive and insidious. But this is a lie from the devil himself because in the family of God, there is no distinction between us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all justified, not by what we do, but by the grace of God. And it says that we are one in Christ. Our skin color is irrelevant in the eyes of God. Our gender is irrelevant in in the sight of God. Our income status, our our backgrounds, our family pedigree, those things are irrelevant before God, and they ought to be irrelevant before, before us. And for all the differences that make us unique, not one of us has cause to discriminate or look down on any of our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how culturally different we might be. Why? Because we're family. Because we are what we are by the grace of God. We are redeemed because of what God has done for us and we receive it simply on the basis of faith. That's it. And so the Jews are face to face with the fact that they have nothing to boast in and that they're not superior to the Gentiles. And they don't have an exclusive claim on God, and all kinds of, you know, and, and all of all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are justified on the same basis, not by the works of law, but by grace through faith. To which then Paul's imaginary opponent would push back and ask, well, what do we do then? Are we just do we overthrow the law by this faith? If what you're saying is true that you're saved by grace through faith and not of works, does that mean then we're simply taking this law and just discarding it like it's nothing anymore? Are you saying that the law is unimportant now that faith has come? Now that that a person has faith in Christ and and the righteous requirements of the law have been met in him, does the law have any basis for us anymore? And Paul says emphatically, by no means. He says on the contrary, we actually uphold the law by this faith. The thing that we need to see is the grace of God and and his gospel excludes boasting and it excludes discrimination and it also excludes antinomianism. Antinomianism. Antinomianism simply is a word that's comp- basically that's composed of two words, anti, which means no, and nomos, which means law. It simply means no law. And it's this idea that now that that Christ, that Christ has come, we have been saved by faith apart from works of the law, that the law no longer then matters is and is irrelevant to Christians. And again Paul's response to that is simply, that's just not true. In fact, our faith upholds the law. Which, by the way, is a point that many people who call themselves Christians ignore. This is a point that many Christians who call themselves Christians ignore to their own peril. People will, you will hear people whenever you remind them of, of sin, or maybe you might have been you're trying to help them see that they're walking in sin. You're like, careful there, brother. I'm saved by grace, not by works of the law. As as if, you know, Christians are completely free of what the law is. By the way, it's simply not true. The law is every bit as relevant today as it has always been. The moral law that was given that was for all people at all times is just as relevant today as it was back then. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, but the, 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 the truth is the gospel depends on it. But you need to realize that there is an indispensable link between the gospel and the law. The gospel and the law are indispensably linked together. The law and the gospel are are connected in a way that cannot ever be separated. So whether you, you say that you must obey the law to be a Christian, or you say that the law is not relevant for Christians, in either case, that person doesn't understand either the law or the gospel. By the way, those are the opposite equal errors on both ends of the spectrum. You have those that say, you've got to keep the law and you've got to do stuff to be saved. And over here, do you have people who say, it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want now because of grace. The Christian life is not a call to live in legalism, right, as if we need to keep the law. But neither is it a call to live in antinomianism as if the law doesn't matter. The gospel is really the key for right understanding the law. The first thing we need to understand is that the law is a revelation of God's standard of righteousness. As we've talked about before, the law reveals God's righteous character and it reveals to us what is required for a human being to have fellowship with God. If you remember, what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who, are, who will be justified. In order for mankind to be righteous before God, he must be able to keep the law. And that, my friends, is the bad news because you know what? You can't do it. It's impossible for us. We have all sinned and fallen short of this. As Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. But here's the thing, the the requirement still stands. God didn't just change his mind on this. The requirement didn't change because God himself doesn't change. So somebody has to obey the law. Somebody has to. The law must be obeyed by some way. Otherwise, God's righteous requirements are are never met. And then either God is either unrighteous for letting letting us into his presence without holding us accountable or all of mankind is consigned to his doom. That's why... The incarnation of Christ is such an important doctrine. It's because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man, and in His humanity, He did just that. He kept for us the law. Somebody must obey the law, and Christ obeyed it. Somebody must keep the covenant of works, and Christ kept it. He fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law. Christ satisfied God's righteous requirements for fellowship. He did what we couldn't do. And by faith then, in what Christ did, that righteous requirement is then credited to us. We are treated by faith in the sight of God as if we had kept the law for ourselves. We are treated by God through faith in Christ as if we had kept the covenant of works. Now we know that none of us did that, but we did that simply by trusting in what Christ himself had done and having our faith in him and him alone. So the righteous requirement of the law is still there. Somebody still must obey it, but we can't do it, and Christ did it for us. That's why we must have faith in him. And this is yet another reason why we affirm the things that Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Why? because no one else could do what he did. No one else kept the righteous requirements of the law that's required to have fellowship with God. The only way to be in the presence of God is through faith in Christ. And only way for him to credit his righteousness to us is by faith. And so the law reveals God's standard of righteousness. The law must be obeyed by someone, and the law is also a mirror for us to look in. It's the mirror by which we examine ourselves. It's the mirror that reveals to us how we have fallen short of God's righteousness and how hopeless we are when we're left our own devices. This is why, by the way, when you present the gospel, you start with God and His law. See, there's this tendency in American Christianity, we want to take the law and just set it aside and say, Jesus loves you and thinks you're awesome. Oh, that's great. I love me and think I'm awesome too. What a great God. Right? We don't start there. Why? Because that doesn't get you to where you're putting your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's only when we look in the mirror and we see how deformed we can become as an image bearer of God that we realize how corrupt we are and how we need to be saved. It's looking in the mirror that we finally see our need for Christ. It's looking into law that we finally understand. I can't do it. The summary of the law is simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Try it. You can't do it. This mirror isn't something we only use once in a while, though, when we get saved. We don't just look at the mirror once, see that we're horrid and need Christ, and then we don't have to ever look again. The mirror is always a continual reminder that pushes us back to Christ. Because as we live our lives, we want to wander away from Him. As we live our lives, we think we can do it. We have it on our own strength. I'm, look at me. I'm not cussing anymore. I must be a real good Christian. Right? And then somebody cuts you off. Okay. It's the mirror that reminds us continually of our need for God's ongoing grace and mercy. You see, we don't need it just one time. We need it continually because our need is ongoing. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ and His atoning work on the cross. And and we are given a righteous life because of Him. But the truth is, even then, we still fail in sin. And though the penalty of our sin has been paid, even though that's never going to be held over our heads ever again, we are still called to grow in holiness and walk in obedience. Why? Because we've been given a new nature. As Paul's going to unpack for us in Romans chapter 6, right, there's something new about us. In fact, let me just give you a little preview of what that looks like. Paul asks, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's like, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father that we too might walk in newness of life. You see, if we're truly a Christian, and God has redeemed us, then there is an expectation that something in our lives will have changed. Something about us will have changed. The God that you once hated, you will love, and the sin that you once loved, you will begin to hate. Even when you fall back into it, you'll still hate it. And you won't use the grace of God as an excuse to sin, but you will rather lean on that grace as God continues working through you, through sanctification inside of you, Trusting that he will conform you into the image of Christ. If you truly are a Christian, the law is an important reminder of what God has done for you and what he's currently doing for you now. It's a reminder that by God's grace at work in you, that you ought to be killing sin so it not be killing you. And so the grace of God, as we see here then in this little short Section excludes boasting. Let us never boast in anything but Christ. It excludes discrimination. Let us never let our noses get in the air when we're around other people that we might remember, even those that are broken around us in the worst condition that we would think to ourselves, praise you, Lord, for by your grace that I haven't been there. And it also excludes antinomianism, right? And that we need to to lean in and trust Christ all the more. Because the gospel begins with the same thing, grace through faith. And we will continue in the gospel through the same thing, grace through faith. And that will be completed in us one day through the same thing, grace through faith. We pray